You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Have you ever wondered what it's like for an Aussie to work in some of the most prestigious and recognisable gardens in the UK? The UK is a part of the world consisting of England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. The horticultural tradition in the UK runs deep, and that's evident in gardens that can sometimes be several hundred years old. Scott Smith, who's been a guest in episodes 110 and 115, and who also hosts the regular Hort Skills program on this podcast, is also a head gardener for the National Trust for Scotland. Tyler Howard and Ash Walker have both had access to an incredible life experience through the BBM program that they'll speak about, where they were able to experience what it's like to work overseas in the UK. I'll just add a little caveat here and say that the boys both worked at Monet's Garden in France as well, but we focus a lot more on the UK than the rest of Europe, so we'll save the Working in Europe episode title for another day. First you'll hear from Tyler, then Ash, then Scott. Welcome to the show, boys. So I guess let's start this show off, Tyler. I'd like to hear a little bit about what the BBM program is. So BBM Youth Support started out back in the 20s as a big brother movement between Australia, the UK and New Zealand to help people. I'm pretty sure I might be wrong in some of the facts, but it was to get young people teamed up with older mentors and encouraging them in the workplace and figuring out their career and future. And it's basically evolved into a program where it covers all trades. So as long as you're qualified to a minimum Cert 3 and between the ages of 18 and 23, gives you the opportunity to travel to wherever you want with the help of a mentor and gain some critical experience to kickstart your career. Whether you're in horticulture and you want to go to the UK, America, or uh, Southeast Asia to Singapore, or if you're in agriculture and you want to go to wherever, um, if you're performing arts, you can go to uh, the Netherlands or Italy. It's really broad spectrum. Even covers mechanic studies. So yeah, it gives um, you get a stipend basically. It's a eight thousand dollar stipend through uh, BBM, and it allows you to. Do as much as you can with whatever you've got saved in the kitty and that money. And it's amazing what you can achieve, really. Fantastic. So yeah, do you guys know how many people per year get to go for the horticulture program? It uh, it normally changes, it does. It, most of the time it depends on what sponsors there are. Roughly there's it, – it depends on the years, really. Um, sometimes it can be one, sometimes it can be three as well, uh, per year. I believe in my year, there was two, I believe. Um, Tyler, how many was in yours? Was it? We had four or or five. So I think on average per annum, it's about four. In the, in the horticulture one, is it? Yeah. Oh, it has been. I'm not sure. Uh, It's a lot of people. So do you, yeah. buddy up, you know, if if you're three, do you get to stick together or do you all get set separate ways? You you can. And the only reason that, however, the only reason Ash and I were in the UK and another guy, John, were in the um, UK at the same time is because 
I actually was awarded mine in 2019, Ash 2020, 2021. Yeah. And then John 2022. So because of COVID, we had a two-year delay where we were all postponed and waiting. Well, I waited two years. Ash waited a, a year. A year. And so, yeah. But that was all bungled up a bit. And we had very similar placements because we each of us had the same mentor. Mm. Mm. Right, so you all have the same mentor. So there's the single mentor for horticulture, is there? I think there's a few, yeah. but but Graham Ross is basically the is a pinnacle of the mentors that you can have because he's got all the connections you could ever imagine in horticulture around the world with his tour com- uh, his garden tour company and um, better homes and gardens broadcast over the last. Oh, Forever. 30 years. 30, year, forever. 30 years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's 40 years of 2GB, so of the garden clinic, and then, yeah, 30 years of, I think it's 30 years of Better Homes and Gardens on the telly. Yeah, He's like right Monty there. Don and Alan Titchmarsh rolled into one. <laughs> yeah. oh, I don't so, think I'm going to see that. Oh. <laughs> oh, it was interesting meeting Monty Don at uh, Chelsea, that's for sure. Oh, you got the honour, did you? Uh, I I think I forced the honour because I ran up to him and sort of grabbed him on the shoulder and said g'day. Oh, that's that's interesting because I, I was at Chelsea one year, not not participating, just just down there to have a look at the place. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, Monty came in with like three security guards and was immediately swept into a tent so that people couldn't run up to him, speak to him and stuff. <laughs> yeah, you could see... Um... There was like hordes of little old ladies and middle-aged women wanting him, and he would be, he'd just be ushered away, and he had his little entourage around him, um, basically fending everyone off, and it was yeah, interest ravenous sights. It's a bit like that whenever you see Costa out and about as well. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you know Costa Scott? Costa Giajardas? Has he made his way over there? No, we've got Costa Coffee. Nah, you're yeah. out. That's shit. I'm sorry. I know we can edit that out, but I went and got a. I think I was on on the way somewhere in the morning, and I I was like, oh, I was looking around, and there was Pret, there was Costa, and something else. I was like, oh, I'll try Costa because I sent. A, I took a selfie and sent it to Costa, saying, "Hey, thanks for the coffee." But um, it was all right. I got a black coffee, but then I got a cappuccino, and it, and I was like, oh, yeah, no, I think I'll just stick to black coffee. You do, yeah. You just don't go to chains. Yeah, yeah the, there's so many cool little, um, especially around like London's, like it, it's yeah, just a magnet for yeah. independent kitchen niche sort of place. And the, I got off the bus one day at Richmond, um, and I was, I think I was talking to you, Ash, and then Ash told mm. me that there's an Australian cafe. Was yeah. that the one you were telling me about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause, yeah, it sold like Tim Tams and Shapes and a couple other little, little knickknacks like that. Um, what was it called? Uh, oh, I can't remember. Butterbean? I think that was one. Butter... That, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, but that was really cool. I was like, oh, shit. There's yeah, a couple of them, actually. Get some Tim Tams and some Allens. But, um, yeah, I'm literally just back from though. London. Yeah, I'm just literally back from London. The other day, I went down for my wife's birthday treat. Oh, nice. And basically, yeah, I find London is friendly if you're spending money. Otherwise, that's it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If Melbourne's you've got cash, like they're country. happy to see you. If you don't have cash, <laughs> yeah. you can bugger off. 
Yeah, if I, in terms of living, I'd want to be either, yeah, far north or far south of London. I mean, imagine it's a great place to live if you're rich. If you're rich, it'd be awesome. But otherwise, no, forget it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. So, Tyler, how did you, like, first even hear about the program and how did you get connected with it? Like, why were you chosen? Um. So when I graduated TAFE in, that was in, so of course finished, my diploma finished in 2018, but we didn't graduate because of all the part-time students till the following year in March. So that was, I'm pretty sure that's the timeline of events. And anyway, when at the graduation event, however later it was, Graham Ross actually did a speech at the, um, at my TAFE and congratulated and, you know, gave a spiel about horticulture having been a, te- a head teacher there in horticulture during the 70s and 80s um and then he said well if you're in this age bracket and do- if you've studied you know cert three cert four diploma anything related to horticulture um here's this opportunity uh catch me up later and we'll have a chat and so i was like i was like dead locked onto him like from the audience uh, in a few rows behind the front row and I was like I just want to talk to him because I've listened to him for years with since I was a kid with my grandparents and um yeah I he was giving out business cards saying good I yep oh yep more information good business card and I walked up and he was like I told Andrew that kid's gonna come up and beat my ear off and so we went <laughs> around and we went over I think we grabbed I brought him a beer I think or any we went and sat had a quick chat and um that I was I was sold on going to Europe because uh, he immediately mentioned a few places that I'd, I'd heard of and wanted to go were on the garden bucket list, and um, ever since we got into regular contact and started getting onto preparing the BBM application, and um, I think having spoken to the um, how did you call it one of the jury members um, the selection panel narelle smith who's um mm. does amazing work as well in consulting horticulture she just said that she liked seeing someone who wore, wore their heart on the sleeve because it was all about my my goals were about sustainability uh and implementing long-term change into the way we operate horticulture in australia because there's a lot of chemical use and um you know and between not just chemical use but also certain practices which are you know, it's time that we left the cowboy stuff behind, started teaching some ethics in classes and raised the bar a little bit higher and brought the awareness of what we're doing in horticulture. Because, if you, you know, you see people hand weeding or hand pruning and, you know, supervisors' alarm bells go off in these maintenance companies and say, what, what are you wasting time for? So well, there's a difference between getting a job done by a date, and then there's getting a job done by a proper quality controlled timeline where it is achievable. You can get it done quickly, but you don't have to go over the rose bushes with a hedger, you know, and you shouldn't because you're going to get a bad result. Yeah, I completely agree. I definitely see myself on that same, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't know if it's a, if it's a fight or it's a war or something like that, but I'm on your side. I think that, um, where the challenge is, is it's going to have to be, we're going to have to educate the public. It's going to start with educating the public in the value of 
true horticulture, not just, as you say, the petrol cowboys. And yeah. then the councils will listen and, and um, wages will rise, you know, um, you know, because the councils are going to be able to take more money from the public to pay us, basically, because profit margin doesn't raise a thing. That's um, it, so- no. That's literally something I just spoke to someone about the other day was um, saying that when you get to our stage, you feel obliged to call yourself a horticulturalist rather than a gardener because gardener has a connotation of, you know, guy shows up with a white van, 20 bucks, you'll cut your, your lawn and do your hedge for an hour. You know, when you're a horticulturalist, it implies that you have so much more knowledge than just how to cut grass and how to cut a hedge. Mm. Yeah. Completely agree. I did a LinkedIn post recently, um, you know, why... Why do um, carpenters get their own category on a lot of these sites like um, Seek and stuff like that? Whereas, you know, horticulturists often get lumped in with um, tradespeople or, you know, just under a general thing or like gardening and landscaping. Like, I guess that's kind of close, but depending on where you are, um, landscaping just isn't really a good fit. And gardening, as you say, that's like calling a carpenter a handyman, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, that's true. Well, LinkedIn only recently, in in the last fourteen mm. months or so, added horticulture as a, a job category. P- before that, I was in trades and services, and um, yes, which is like, well, if you look at it, horticulture and being a horticulturalist, it's uh, it's an applied science as well as a mm. practical field. There's so many. Mm. It is multifaceted, but think about it. If you've got to go do a pest and disease uh, ident and propose an integrated pest management plan is a guild gardener going to do that no he's going to go to the local hardware or nursery pick up whatever spray is suited not to denigrate gardeners because some of them and most of them have some of an idea but generally they'll either go get a bottle of roundup or a bottle of comfortor if they can get their hands on it or something else but whereas if you are a horticulturalist, you can say, actually, there's no pest damage whatsoever. Looks like you just got a soil issue. Let's have a little in, you know, investigation. And it could be down to nutrition or poor drainage or 430 other things. <laughs> to be fair, Tyler, the LinkedIn might have just seen the flannel shirt, mate, and just thought, oh, he's a tree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Too many death threats from certain, certain <laughs> horticulturists. <laughs> okay, we, I was going to go on to Ash, but I've got to hear about the death threats now. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> go on, tell us about the death threats. No, I, I've sent a few messages to LinkedIn saying like, hey, what the hell is this? You know, where's I essentially have is I've seen a post of mm. a petition and I signed yes. a petition for it. Because mm. I, I, it's not that I'm really that bothered by it. I mean, I'm only I, at the time. I think I was probably only 25. I'm 26 now, so it wasn't. It was only last year. <laughs> so it's not. I don't really have any weight to the situation. But it's like, you know, it's still that's a, that's what I am, and so many other people are, and especially for young people who if they're trying to get their network sorted. It'd be nice to be able to say, you know, here we are. I'm a horticulturist because you've got other people mm. on there with. Um, you know, they could be in the field of science. So they've got a, a field that's relevant to their degrees. But, um, yeah, in terms of just, you know, horticulturists, what the hell? Yeah, man? I remember signing it as well. Mm, I did as yeah. well. So how about you, Ash? Yeah. How did you hear about the BBM program and how did you get involved and why were you chosen? 
Well, it's the story is very similar to ours, actually. I was at an awards ceremony. It was for Nina, um, Nina New South Wales and ACT, the awards ceremony. I was up for Bloomer of the Year, I think the award was called. I didn't end up getting it. I was just one of the finalists. But actually, at the at that night, I actually met uh, Narelle Smith uh, then, and she was telling me all about the about the scholarship and what all these other people did and where they went. And then from that night onwards, I was, I briefly would be talking to her. And then also uh, Justin Longhurst, who was my um, boss at the World Garden Centre at the time. Uh, he also encouraged me to look at the scholarship and um, pursue it. And then there was another, I can't remember what it was. It might have been some other awards night or something, but that's when I met Graham. And then I also mentioned it to him and he also encouraged me to do it. And then we were also briefly after that in contact and then applied for the scholarship, went through the whole process of um, the whole, whole application process of it. And eventually, yeah, came out, come out with the being awarded the scholarship. But um, why I applied for it was, I don't know, more, like with Thai, like the being more sustainable with in the Australia's horticulture industry, of course, what all the chemical use that we have and um, just all the other maintenance also practices that are, are used. So going overseas to, you know, places like UK, um, France, and I've heard recently the Netherlands are very, you know, they're ahead of the time when it comes to horticulture. So I thought in my head at that time, I want to go over the, to these countries because that's where the scholarship and that's where Graham also suggested where he, most of his contacts um, are. So he, he said that's why I thought it would be a good idea to go over to those countries and see what I can learn and eventually come back to Australia and uh, implement what I've learned uh, from being overseas. So, And then also the, the travel aspect as well because also I had some – guns on the, the bucket list I also wanted to tick off and I certainly did this with this trip um the top one was probably Chelsea actually not a gun but the Chelsea flower show I've known that for many 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 years and the fact that I got the opportunity to to work at at Chelsea that was yeah certainly one of one of the highlights of the trip it was wow so what were you doing at the Chelsea flower show oh so um so I was working on a sanctuary garden uh, designed by a lady named uh, Kate Gould um, for two weeks of, of the build. And uh, I was just sort of the main horticulturist on the team um, just because the, the show normally runs for, I think it's three, three, three and a half weeks of the, of the, of the build. And I was there for the, two, the last two weeks. So most of it was all, you know, all the hard landscape was done. It was just more just planting out the whole garden. And um, that was basically my, my job was going through planting. And then, you know, you got to, well, you know, you got, you know, it's not what Chelsea is like. It's, you know, very, very particular. You know? you, you'd be going through cleaning the leaves of all the, of cleaning the leaves of all the plants and uh, make sure there isn't a single speck of dirt on either paths. It's really, really petite. But, um, and it was even better the fact that, the garden and I worked on one gold as well. So that was pretty cool. And um, actually Kate, she actually gave me uh, one of the plaques, uh, the gold medal plaque too. So I've got that framed up and uh, 
yeah, that was yeah one of the one definitely one of the big highlights of the trip. Yeah, that's a. I mean, I'm sorry, but I don't know where you can go in your career after that. Like winning gold <laughs> at the Chelsea Flower Show, it's only downhill from here, surely. No, just joking, oh, oh no, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Those experiences um, that gives you a real leg up in the world, doesn't it? I mean, like oh, absolutely. How yeah. does that look on your resume, especially if you can put gold next to it? Oh, even you know, just. That, that's all you need. You know, I don't have to put you know all the other guns that I worked at. Just just need to put Chelsea and <laughs> the gold that one and page. <laughs> that's it. No more questions asked. You're straight in. That's that's how it is. Like just the the whole you know the whole scholarship, the, all the opportunities it's provided, and all the other opportunities going to provide. It's just absolutely insane, really. Mm. So Tyler, how about you? What was if you had to pick one to talk about? What would be the one experience? that you'd like to let us know about your trip overseas? It is hard to pinpoint, and I've tried to pick one out of the rest. Because um, Chelsea was fantastic, and it was amazing. Um, the show way, you don't only on, have to do one. I just mean one for now. For now I know. <laughs> it, it's hard to... Some, get, yeah, I reckon France, actually, because, um, you know, I will waffle. Uh, France was amazing <laughs> because it was such a, it was a culture shock in the way that it was going in, not going in the deep end. I had a bit of French under my belt so I could navigate some conversations, but then that was working in a, in a high, high functioning garden, Claude Monet's garden, which gets thousands of visitors every day. Um, mm. It's in per, it's usually kept in perfect condition. Um and it's not high stakes, but it was a lot of current, constant flow um, and little things can hold things up, especially in terms of production. So they grow and raise all of their own plants in the nursery. Um, so if you get a hiccup or squirrels come in and eat half of the violets for the next season, well, you don't have a garden. And it's amazing. They grow... Oh, what was it, 30-odd thousand plants for the plant-out season um, during spring and summer, and there's a constant backlog. They've always got plants ready to go in as, as soon as one's dead or they see it failing, straight to the green waste and in with a new hmm. replacement. So it was it was interesting in that, in that regard of having to learn, you know, tools, uh, directions, de- you know, intricate conversation skills that you won't get out of a French to English dictionary or Google translate will say something completely different. That's crazy. So I guess they, they call that um, the famous painter Monet wasn't his garden, his magnum opus, they say. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, it's quintessentially him and basically his painting career as a, it's, it's his place. It's so, um, recognizable uh, the bridge and the lily pond for example he he focused so much of his um working life painting just that one location yet he captured it in so many different ways that there was never two there's never two paintings the same although of course you can distinguish that oh yes it's money but um it, it's such an interesting place and extremely beautiful to be there and being there after hours and before hours you catch the sunrise or the sunset and there's no one around before the hordes of tourists come in um 
it's really special. And, you know, being at Headkit in a, on a foggy morning where it's, you know, the chill before the day and before it gets bustling and you can just be with yourself uh, amongst the countryside and, you know, enjoy all the bird song. You know, in Nor- being in Normandy at Monet's Garden, you've got nothing but the silence of the hills, maybe a car or a train in the very far distance, but it's really serene and you you look, uh, you look, you feel as if that you're in his painting and you can feel to a degree what he's thinking and it's quite a quite a nice place and a positive positively emotional place it's interesting that you say you can understand what he's thinking can you elaborate on that just briefly i think you're you're getting engulfed by the natural beauty of the place and yes there are elements where it feels contrived of course um in his time i think it would have felt more contrived because it was a the planting palette was smaller. These days we're using, or they're using, I should say, uh, modern varieties of plants, um, different cultivars, as much as would be available then, plus extras to retain the image of a Monet painting year-round, whereas he would have had distinct seasonal sh- shifts and changes. Mm-hmm. Um, even up to autumn and into winter, it still would probably look the closest to how he would have seen it back in the day because you've got plants that are in there right up until the very end and the planting density is a lot higher than it would have been. But when you go down there and you see the reflection on the pond, it's incredibly still and it's you're looking into a mirror, looking at the trees cast across it, sunrise, you know, light starting to gleam over, light fog. And if you go and look into his paintings you can see exactly what he was trying to capture and that was he was painting the light he was painting all of those relationships between the plants the overall landscape and um i think that's how i would explain it really you can just feel that mm. there is that the sense of, of, of appreciation it was his baby he, he him and the gardeners that he employed turned it into exactly what he saw for the space and i think by the end of it and his as he got older well i mean he was old when he got it but when he was even more older he certainly would have felt accomplished with it and satisfied because you look at that look at it what it is today and how closely they've followed every document that they retained from original receipts between nurseryman and monet himself that there is so much correlation for that historical accuracy, but also keeping in mind that there are tourists every day and we've got to keep it looking nice. So there's a, there's a good marriage of uh, history and current times um, that make you feel that, yeah, I see what Monet meant. That's very cool. I actually think I've seen multiple angles of that bridge and water lilies, but it's mostly Ash and his waders cleaning it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fully immersed in the yeah, in the paintings there. <laughs> yeah. So what you need to do is artist. just photo yeah, photoshop yeah. you onto it in your waders. <laughs> yeah. uh. <laughs> uh, if we can get a good um a good painter around to do a reproduction. <laughs> you get one with Ash in it. That'd be the that'd be the money shot. Yeah. Well, I'll do that this year then. 
you go. <laughs> are you going to get back there, are you? I am, yeah. Going to go back there for about five months. I'm going to plan. Wow. Plan to go back for five months. Yeah. So why is that? Uh, again, like even though I said Chelsea was one of the like, one of my favorite, like Monet's was also. It, it's it, it's it's a close between those two. I, I I can't choose between them, but yeah, just as what Tyler said, working at Monet's was just again another dream garden to work at and. Yeah, just to just to work there, and again, it was you know being when we planned all our travels to, you know, all the gardens we were working at were in the UK, and you know everyone speaks English over there, and going to French where it's totally totally different to what I've ever experienced. It was just certainly one of the places I'm more look forward to go to before I did go there. I'd say. I was more excited to go there to see what because it was just so different compared to everything everything else. Am I correct in saying that none of that program included any Scottish gardens? No, it, but it oh, did. Wait, wait, wait! I did uh, look into Edinburgh, um, the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. I did look into that to go there, but I unfortunately was wasn't able to tee that one up. It's, oh, it's, that would be excellent. That one. Yeah. It's it's sort of you 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 can of course go to Scotland and um, a few other countries, but it just sort of depends on your time frame and also your budget um, as well. It can be other factors of it. Do you have to manage your budget? Uh, yeah. So you, well, you get eight thousand dollars in the scholarship, and then the rest of it, if you want to, you know, of course, go for six months like like I did. You got to put your own money into it as well. So you say you have to, yeah. You don't want to run out of money halfway through, so you're going to make sure you budget a bit before you go. And so you can just get a volunteering gig at any of these gardens that are on this list? Yeah. It's not well, even a list. It's um, it's, it's a double check with Graham and see mm-hmm. – or Graham and as well, I meant to mention it when I was talking about Andrew. getting it, Andrew Fisher-Tomlin of the London College of Garden Design. Um, yeah. He and Graham, were, they've got everyone in their diary and address mm-hmm. book. And it was—it's a matter of just cross-referencing with them because at least um, they were so helpful in putting the foot in the door and doing those initial introductions. And having having not had them and their help, it would have been another story getting any placements at um, oh, yeah. any of the lo- any of the places. Mm. So um, that was really helpful. Can't just rock up to Alexandra Gardens <laughs> and spend the rest on champers. <laughs> well. Yeah, I did think about that after Chelsea, just having an absolute bender, but um, there's definitely more to it. <laughs> so how I'd like to go is I'd like to ask Ash and Tyler both about one more garden, and then I'll ask Scott about, from your ex- your perspective, is it feasible to, to be doing what these guys are doing without the BBM program? So, you know, volunteering and then even like about getting a job at these places, like, is it as easy as just rock up or, you know, what do we need to think about? Does that sound good? Cool. Yep. Sure. Mm-hmm. So Ash, can you tell us about like, what was another garden that you worked in that was really a highlight for you that really stands out and that you'd recommend to anyone else who comes from Australia to see something that they've never seen before? Mm, okay. Um in the way of sustainability, I would probably say the Eden Project. Um, 
down there in Cornwall. I'll say that's probably another one is should be on high everyone's on high on everyone's list. Just the fact that the all the processes that they go through, like in in both of the domes, there's no chemical spraying at all. If to do how they deal with their pest management is they always use beneficial insects. They guys go down the organic route of um yeah with their pest management. The weed control, it's all all um yeah, it's all the uh, manual handling. Most of it is actually. Um, but no, just that the in project is very sustainable in all of their practices that they do. Um, and so, just what the fact, stands out just, to you in terms of the practices that they were doing? Well, just that they're so different from here. What from, was different from Australia? Just like all of the pest management that we have. Like you go to a, let's say a wholesale nursery down here. You know, when they have you know, a, a see a weed growing, they'll just oh, we'll just spray that. So over there, they actually think of the repercussions that that could do, you know, not to just to kill the weed, but then also everything else, the environment around it. So they yeah, also the fungicides and pesticides that wholesale yeah. nurseries use. I mean, some of them have. We know that half the systemic uh, fungicides, or not half them. That sorry, that's a, that's when I get really riled up and I start <laughs> making up facts. Um, no, but there are a few um, notable systemic fungicides by reputable brands in Australia in particular, mm-hmm. which are directly linked to, in animal testing, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in rats and mice. And, you know, think about the ongoing effect, the, the knock-on effect. Um, mm. If you're going to apply that to the soil as a soil drench, or a fol- uh, particularly a soil drench, uh, what other feeder routes is it going to be connecting oh. with and what mm. plants are implicated? Mm. And you're leaving a vacuum there as well for whatever nasties want to come in a couple of months. Oh, yeah. But exactly, I mean, yeah. there's a reason why people use it, right? So Ash, what were they doing instead of using chemicals? Because you can't just stop using chemicals and keep doing what you were doing before without the chemicals. That That's not going to work. Like most of it was either hand weeding or, you know, steam. Was another, and actually, at Monet's there was another. Well, I can't remember what was that. Tyler, you remember what that was? That machine was called. Uh, I called Hopefully it Thomas. We... No, was that it was steam a, foam. It was a massive. Um, it, it looked like an old, an, an old-fashioned oh. boiler-driven traction engine, but oh. um, it was a, it was just a boiler on a set, heated by, I think it was diesel heated, and mm-hmm. it had a about a two meter by one point eight meter pad. Which you two it requires two people and it was full of it's like a barbecue almost an upside down barbecue and the st- and it boiled the water to you know superheated steam and it would basically steam a patch of the earth to about ten centimeters deep and they'd leave it there for a few minutes to pasteurize the soil and then move it along and they covered up their I think it, what was about a, almost a quarter acre little plot for. Mm. in-ground growing of the, you know, different perennials that they grow in annuals. And I thought that was very impressive. But well, that'll have few. some effects as see well. that. That's what it looked like. Yeah, that looks old school. And see that thing yeah. on the field there? That's that's like the, the, the plate that they put on the ground. And, yeah, heat that up there and leave it for about oh, 10 minutes and then just keep moving that along. So for people who are listening to this episode now, Ash has just put his um, phone up. By the way, the video is not recorded. Um, 
Yeah, it's just like a what he's saying. It's just a big metal plate that um yeah that they've got a big uh, what do you call? It? It's not a compressor. What is it? A boiler, I suppose. It's a, as you boiler, say. It's yeah, a, a boiler, big di- yeah. a diesel heated boiler. So they, I think it's diesel or kerosene. Um, so they, yeah, either they, too. Uh, basically heats up the it heats the water up to above boiling point, and they're able to steam the soil to ten centimeters deep. It looks like an air compressor to me. Like it looks like a giant air compressor. So, so when I saw it and I saw the steam coming out, I was like, <laughs> it's Thomas. Thomas the Tank Engine. Yeah. <laughs> um, like that's but, a closer up one of it. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. I think that actually was interesting when I was talking to um, Remy and a few of the other gardeners there, what their thoughts on it were in terms of its impact on the biodiversity of the soil and the soil biota because, I mean, yes, you're steaming the weed seeds, mm. but what about the worms, my, uh, well, yeah, microbes you, you, and other I would things? expect that you'd be killing a lot of stuff. Yeah. But uh, uh, in turn, um, they do have a great growth rate in the soil mm. and the soil is mm. naturally fertile. Um, mm. so it just bounces of, straight back. It, it does bounce straight back. So that's what yeah. their response was. Pretty interesting. Mm. Mm. But, um, did they do things like green manures? They, yeah, I, yeah. I think that they did talk about that. That was one of the, one of the things I might I wanted to ask them specifically for that growing area because they, they're able to grow almost twenty, thirty thousand plants for the for the following seasons, in that one plot. Uh, so it's an it, that's a major site for, you know, the longevity of the garden through the year in terms of preparing plants. But I didn't find that out from them. Um, I think mm-hmm. they had mm-hmm. talked about it. They do grow a cover crop and then churn it through with a rotary hoe. Mm. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. But again, in terms of pest control, the biological controls and IPM, uh, it was similar at Kew Gardens where they use a lot of um, beneficial insects to outcompete mm. um, the problem pests, uh, which in Australia mm. is still fledgling its... You'll see it in some gardens, like the Botanic Gardens of Australia, but wholesalers, are, some are getting better at it, and a lot of them are using it, but it's not as widespread as it could no. be. No, absolutely, yeah. Part of, <clears throat> at the moment, um, part of the MHORT course I'm doing, I was just literally writing about using integrated weed management in viticulture rather than glyphosate, and kind of having to go through... Yeah, wow. You know, the pros and cons of glyphosate and the impacts it has on sustainability, really. Um, and then a big part of that is why aren't we using integrated weed management, which is just a mm. part of integrated pest management. Mm. And yeah, sure. really, it's just because it's seen as like a newfangled thing and people are so set in their ways of just let's just spray everything. Um, you know, they, they'll think that we can't get the same economic returns by using integrated weed management and oh, it's a lot of hassle and it was kind of just having to sit and write a full literary review on why it's the case that we should be moving towards you know integrated weed management rather than just same old same old yeah. cake everything in glyphosate that's, well, that's an episode good, I mean, scott integrated yeah, we... weed management <laughs> you would you do that with me no don't you go get an ideas boy <laughs> right, I'm signing you up. <laughs> We're going to do integrated weed management, yeah, because that's something. It's something that, I, like, I'm, I'm in. I've got a foot in both camps. Yes, I want less chemicals, but then at the same time, I don't want chemicals banned. 
I'm open to hearing about, um, you know, le- different legislations in terms of, you know, um, restricting it for people with a license. That seems reasonable to me because I think that there actually is a place for glyphosate. Um, and I think anyone who works in natural resource management will tell you that. Now, you know, in the past, I've definitely been a part of, I guess you call it the problem where it's just, you know, it's spraying bare patches of soil, um, you know, instead of just putting mulch down, instead of simple things like that, or obviously putting a ground cover down, there are a lot better things we can be doing. But at the same time, I do recognize glyphosate because it breaks down pretty quickly, you know, it doesn't stay in the soil and there's a lot, there's a lot of good things to be said for it. Yes, it can um, affect bee microbiome in their gut and that can affect how they get home. But it, you know, I think that there are a lot of chemicals out there that have a worse effect and that doesn't necessarily guarantee that bee's going to die. It's just makes things a little bit harder. But other than that, it's pretty good. Uh, yeah, as far as I've seen, as well as the application, I mean, everything's got its place. It, it is a tool in the trade. Um, there is the argument: well, we haven't, we've only had it for the last fifty years or less. Um, we've we've developed the tradition for using it. We've made it a staple. But what did we do before then? And then you say, well, before then, I mean, in small scale, you could manage think gardens by hand, for example. But for agriculture. Um, there was a whole well, landscape, of other parks chemicals. and gardens. Yeah, parks and gardens and lands, all those large scales. Um, it became the one-hit wonder. Um, but before then, mm. there there was some seriously nasty stuff that was um, going around and banned because of it. And uh, you know, half the chemicals that were developed for agriculture and gardening came from you know, the different nerve <laughs> agents and other toxic aerosols they developed for the wars you know agent i think Orange a lot of them and... were made by the nazis mm. weren't they nazi oh, scientists I'm sure, and all that. i'm sure there was i think america has <laughs> no yeah i think a lot uh, yeah. of them were well actually there's america... the guy who made um who got not i do not remember what his name was but the guy who took nitrogen out of the air and turned it into a fertilizer is um he, he was winning the nobel prize <laughs> <laughs> you know, at the same time, he was, he was also up for war crimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. That's a good juxtaposition, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Because, um, like, but- it is a good thing. Like, honestly, he made, you know, made. Uh, I think a lot of people probably stopped, didn't starve because of that little... Well, that's you know. it. I mean, if you take the agricultural developments out of um, pre-war Germany, uh, pre-war Britain and the UK in, as a whole, and... The USA, the developments have led to vastly less poverty in the world. Um, Monsanto as well. I mean, yep, evil corporation. They gave mm. us Roundup, but also mm. their GMO crops have helped quite mm. a lot of people. Even though it's caused massive divide for small-time farmers um, for crop patenting and DNA patenting, mm. but um, there are some glimmers of hope in this barbaric slaughterhouse that is known as humanity (laughs) so uh, to quote the grand budapest hotel on that one but yeah i think (laughs) you've got to look at everything in a lens you know as much as i'm like no chemicals and all that and i've got the long hair so it really suits that hippie (laughs) dude attitude but um we have to look at it practically because we're you can't jump straight into a new trend um, mm. and it's not a new trend it'd be going back in time you know how mm. did the victorians deal with it they only just started developing superphosphates and organophosphates so if we can actually so i don't even 
think there's a difference there, and I might have made a mistake with what I just said. But um, the superphosphates that came out of the Victorian era, era, again, fantastic development, but it effectively has ruined soils across the board. Um, it's it's not always a benefit. So yeah, glyphosate, it is a tool that is, if you're responsible and know what you're doing and you're not every other Tom, Dick and Harry at Bunnings going, yeah, I like to mix it up bloody three times stronger because it hits them harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, does it, really? Does it? <laughs> well, I guess that's the art and science of horticulture, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's, what that's, that's it. It's maybe going it. into a sliding into the site topic, really going off track a little bit, yeah. But <clears throat> like you were saying, Dan, about glyphosate, I mean, if you ignore problems that it causes to soil subsystems and to human health, animal fauna health, all that kind of thing, um, one of my major parts that I looked into was why would people stop using glyphosate if they love using glyphosate? Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a major part of that was because of glyphosate resistance in weeds, which is becoming more and more of an issue, mm-hmm. um, especially in for farmers or, or places that grow large scale crops, really. Um, you know, they found there were study in 2017 that found that um, there was 38 different plants resistant to glyphosate across 37 countries and they just did another follow-up study this year and found that that had gone up to 56 different weed resistant species wow. across mm. um something like 70 odd countries so you know and that was that was collated data from 661 different weed scientists so they're finding that it's increasingly becoming an issue mm. that they're they're struggling now to find a solution to spray the weeds even if they want to spray it with glyphosate yeah i think and i think in uh, the domestic realm and commercial realm not in terms of horticulture not agriculture um you tend to just rely on that one spray or the one product and you yeah a lot of people if they haven't done a chem cert or they haven't covered that in a diploma or whatever level of study that they completed um you, if you don't do a rotation of chemicals, then you're going to get resistances. You're going to get toxicities, um, and it's different for every chemical you use. But you have pesticides as well. I mean, it's it goes to it goes a long way to just know what you're doing. And if and there are cases of with glyphosate is the only thing that will help. Um, mm. There are other chemicals like triclopa for your woody weeds, yeah. which you can use in conjunction with other things, but there are products on the market that the people who sell them will tell you behind closed doors it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I had that we happen. Had a, we, we had a um, quite a big thing in this year's head gardeners meeting in the National Trust for Scotland where one of our big targets was sustainability. And the trust as an organization is trying to move away from using glyphosate. So we had a number of different gardens trial different methods of getting rid of weeds especially on paths you know things that wasn't going to be growing vegetation anyway so things you know paths that obviously it doesn't matter because you're not affecting flowers or or anything like that kind of thing um so we had you know one garden trial pelargonic acids and found that it was kind of worked pretty expensive and by pretty expensive i mean I'm just making the figures up here, but you know, for example, if you were to take a liter of glyphosate, it was, uh, say, twenty pounds 
or 20 bucks. Um, and the same equivalent volume of the Pelagonic acid, acid was about 1500 bucks. <laughs> You know, really? huge <laughs> amount more. You might as well hand weed. Same volume. Weed yeah, you might as well hand weed, yeah. Yeah, uh, with the, and the problem with pelagonic and non-anoic acids in herbicides is that they act, because they act as a desiccant, they're only burning the leaves. So if you've got a... Yeah, that's it. If you've got a tough weed, we, we have... Yeah, they're, no, they're no good on tap roots. Oh, no <laughs> way, no. No. Uh, we use one called Slasher, particularly at the Botanic Gardens. It's fantastic. It's organic. Uh, if you do get it on you, mm. it, it will burn to a degree. But um, it's fantastic if you can keep it up every week, every fortnight, because you have to keep knocking it back. And it's it's mm. just as effective as whippersnipping pavement rather than... Or mm. at home, I, pour the ke- I boil the kettle and go, out, go outside. Mm. And, yeah. But it, uh, again, glyphosate. The same volume, the equivalent volume as pelagonic acid. That's a systemic. You're going to get at least a fortnight to a month, depending on the area. Have you seen hot foaming? I was about to ask you about that, Scott. Yes, I have heard of uh, Weeding Tech, does it? Is that the company you're talking about? Um, I can't remember, but it was at Colleen Castle, which is another National Trust property, and they decided they have quite a large area of paths, so they would try hot foaming. Um, and again, they said it worked to a degree, probably, you know, nowhere near as successful as glyphosate, but maybe slightly more successful than pelagonic acid. But again, mm. essentially, when it came down to cost, it was extortionate mm. because it has to be specialist contractors. We're not allowed to use the equipment because it's, mm. you know, you need like hot works permits and that kind of thing. And it, it sprays essentially this hot foam out, which will then solidify and then it can be brushed off. And that'll oh, kill the wow. weeds, but you know, heck of a lot of work. Yeah. My understanding is that foam holds the heat in too. So whereas, you know, if you're just doing um steam, just yeah, it just sort of cools down really away. quickly. Yeah. 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 It's one of those things where you gotta stick onto it. And mm. if you have got a patch mm. of dandelions or um cat's mm. ears, you're gonna have to stand there for a good couple of seconds. And you wouldn't want to really do it in belt the lawn. Those tap or, roots. Yeah, <laughs> around the bulbs. Although some people do spray. I've had this on more than one occasion working in domestic gardens where you'll have either a next-door neighbor or you're the person you're working in. I've had it the person next door. I don't know if I've ever had it the person I'm working in's garden. Oh, yes, I have. We have once, once the person's garden I was working in. Anyway, um, they buy – the customer will try and save money and like so that they don't pay you to come through and you know do the weeds properly, however that is horticulturally correct. They'll buy weed spray thinking that they can spray their whole lawn and it just kills weeds. Yep. No, no, no. (laughs) A non-selective herbicide (laughs) because it says weed spray and they think it's just going to kill weeds. I had a client (laughs) once who I'd done work for them and I recommend, you know, thank goodness for insurance and other things. And I just loosely said about broadleaf weeds in the lawn, yeah, just get it. You know, we can do a... a, weed spray, yeah, to, treat, spray yeah. to treat that and I, I just said weed spray and <laughs> so I get a call one day hey can you come and look at the lawn I think we might have grubs or something and I come over the next <laughs> couple of days or whatever so they had seen it start to go yellow I when I came it was dead nothing it was void of life and they had <laughs> they used roundup and sprayed the whole buffalo lawn with roundup and it was 
it was one of those moments where you go, holy mackerel. And yep. they said, well, you said we could weed spray it. And I said, well, yeah. I, said, I, said, I could. <laughs> I and could I was weed gonna, spray. <laughs> and and we, I would have recommended a broadleaf, but we didn't even get into a conversation because you only had like three patches of what cudweed, a bit of, um, you know, just a hand, not even a handful of weeds. And um, so it's sort of an eyebrow. It was a real eyebrow scratcher. Um, but, hey, it gave me an extra few days of work replacing half the turf. So, but it see, was. That, I hate that stuff. I don't like it, and yeah. it, it's one of those things where, yeah, people do go in with wishful thinking and good intentions half the time, but it's also don't take take things with a grain of salt and get a cross reference because if you have got a sixty square meter lawn or or whatever you've got. You know, you can do some heavy damage. You can do some damage. What was their coverage like? Did did they get it patchy or was it good? Oh no, they. I'd hire them. Uh, they yeah, just yeah. A bit of training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one that the the two that I can remember. One of them was a next door neighbor. One of them was a client. And no, they were not good. They were zigzaggy as all get out. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I was working recently at a site. Um, Oh, in the last year or so. And, um, yeah, there was one event where we had two spray packs. One was non-selective, one was selective. And so there was a chemical called stadium in one for broadleaf weeds in uh, most turf grasses. Works better in cooch. And then the other one was just Roundup. And I had asked someone to do a spray down there with the, the backpack of selective. And um, yeah, there was a few zigzags, and but it was actually. Do you know what? No, it was a pelagonic acid in the other one. It wasn't Roundup because we did a triple rinse and um, flushed it. We would just do it. We just had to use up the slasher that we had, which is a product. Slasher is uh, most common. Non-selective. Non-anoic or pelagonic acid, and um, so yeah, about an hour later, I can start to see dark lines forming, and then. I was thinking, that's really good. <laughs> and then I can I could see them start to go yellow and I went, Oh no. <laughs> Ran down and, and quickly It's too late to do anything. Too late. Uh, the yeah. irrigation went on. <laughs> I mixed up the blue and the red dye in a spray pack as well to try and make it a nice concentrated green right. colour. And I actually tried to spray <laughs> the dye up green. It was a very high what? profile what area. Boss? And um Thank you know, thank goodness, no one said anything about it. But um, it, I was so worried, and it was a, it wasn't a big area, but you could just see that it, it was oh, too funny. It happens. I mean, I remember quite distinctly how my oh, must have been only about my second month working at Duthie Park, which is a public park in Aberdeen. Um, probably considered the sort of crown jewel park in Aberdeen. And I would have only been second, maybe third, second, no, probably second, second to third year gardening, um, relatively new, just on my spraying course. And I got sent to go spraying weeds. And at that time, the council actually wanted you to, believe it or not, spray glyphosate even within the herbaceous borders for weeds and that kind of thing, rather than hand weeding. So <clears throat> I went through and I was like, hell of a lot of dockings in here. You know, I was just mm. like, right, spray. Spray, 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 spray. And then the next week later, the supervisor came and went, 
The good news is you're consistent, you're good at spraying. The bad news is you've killed all our Persicaria bestorta. (laughs) 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 Did you not twig when there's like a consistently large repetitive number of patches that it wasn't docks? And I was like, "Mm, evenly spaced. Yeah, perfectly evenly spaced. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I've had the one where they stored chemicals in Gatorade bottles and didn't label it, so I ended up <gasps> spraying a whole garden with um, oh. with neem oil instead of whatever flasher <laughs> it was. And so we got a call two weeks later. Did did you spray last week? Yes. Wait for another week because you know it might take a while. And then another phone call. Can you come back and actually spray because nothing's <laughs> happened? And a quick conversation. <laughs> What's the deal here? Like, can we get proper containers and labels and yeah? Rates? Oh my goodness, that is one hundred and one. Anyone who's putting the wrong chemical, oh my goodness, without labeling it, yep, yeah, outrageous. I mean, the garden smells magnificent. It's blueberry it black. Yeah, but... yeah. <laughs> the plants are now protected from all the pests that would have otherwise. Mm. The weeds, at least, weeds are happy. <laughs> so, Scott. Tell me, like, what are the chances of someone, like, let's just say tomorrow I want to redo my resume and I want to move to the UK, like, and I want to work in some of the gardens that these boys are talking about. What What's the likelihood, like, am I going to have to volunteer? Can, do you reckon I can get a paid job? Um, what qualifications do I need? What What's the outlook like for an Aussie traveling to the UK to work as a gardener? Uh, the bad news is, Dan, that you're actually blacklisted at the border. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. Um, I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't know the exact uh, logistics because it's complicated now with Brexit. Um, as you know, Britain left the EU and they used to have quite a smooth transition with things like the Erasmus program, which meant there was academic scholarship between UK and Europe. Um, Obviously, Aussie's part of the the Commonwealth. So there probably is a good chance of getting in um, and doing programs. I mean, just listening to Tyler and Ash, I'm truly jealous of what the BBM program is. I mean, that sounds absolutely amazing. And I can't think of anything that's a similar equivalent over here. I mean, we have the, the Royal Horticultural Society and we've got the Chartered Institute of Horticulture. I think there's the, the Colgrave Seabrook Foundation maybe do scholarships. But in terms of that, mostly those are all British and UK gardens. You know, I don't think I would have anywhere near as, as well, I'm not saying easy, but I, I don't think I could as smoothly decide I want to go do a scholarship at Claude Monet's garden or any of the other amazing places that, that, you know, the two two guys have been talking about. So in terms of you coming over here, um, certainly within what I'm what I'm working in at, at the National Trust for Scotland, um, we would take on any volunteers, really. We've had people from America say, I'm just over for a holiday for a couple of months. I really want to come and see the garden. And, you know, we can get them in for as long as they want to come in and volunteer because that's not an issue because you don't really need um i don't think there's as much visa complications and things like that but you know paid work again i don't know what the rules are um with regard to that but you know i, I think if you came here on a work visa there's no reason you couldn't come in and start working because 
one of the things we used to do in the trust was we had French students every year. Um, when I was an apprentice myself, I used to share the gardener's cottage with the French students that would pop over. You know, they'd come for two months and they were at a horticulture college in Normandy and they would come over here and kind of try and see what's different. And obviously Pitmeden, where I worked, was a 17th century French inspired garden, which was you know, inspired by Villa Vacombe and, and the Palace of Versailles. So they would come over here and we, we would have, we would actually have quite a good time. You know, their broken English, my very, very broken French, um, <laughs> trying to discuss things. Usually beer solves all. You sit and have a beer and it doesn't matter if you can't speak the same language. <laughs> um, but I mean, obviously Britain is quite synonymous, you know, and Ireland, I have to say Ireland because they're separate now, but Britain and Ireland are quite synonymous with famous gardens across the world, really. Um, and I would say they do have quite high horticultural standards. So I would, you know, I'd recommend anyone to, to pop over. I mean, as I say, the, the gardens at Ash and Tyler have been at, you know, the Eden Project and... Um, getting to go to Chelsea and things like that. And did you say Hiddicote and did you say Sissenhurst maybe? Was it Great Dixter? Anything uh, like no, we didn't go. We didn't, we didn't get any placements there. Um, mm-hmm. We did We did look to visit there, um, but just, you know, with the amount of so busy all the time, you know, we've got so many people saying, you have to go to this guy, you have to go to this guy, you have to go to this guy, and you just, you just can't. But no, we um, there was Hidkit, Hidkit, yeah, National Trust Hidkit Manor was where we were. For four weeks, I think we're both there for four weeks. I think we were. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's, there's so many. You know, there's Q. Um, and yeah, another one. Yeah. You know, so, so you know, and then you go up to Scotland. There's ones in Wales. There's ones in Ireland. You know, you come up to my neck of the woods in Scotland, and there's you know the Royal Botanics in Edinburgh. There's a lot of the National Trust places like Crathis and yeah. Colain and you know Brodick and Arduni, and there's there's so many gardens you could go to and all of them have their own particular character and spirit and standards and and history methodologies and all that kind of stuff so you know there, there's a massive wealth for learning yeah. horticulture oh, over here in, in such a small place because you know I, I don't know how many britons would fit in australia but i imagine it's quite a few <laughs> all of them <laughs> we've got space as long as you don't mind um yeah uh, it's gonna be hot red earth <laughs> it's going to be hot and dry. Yeah, dry as a nun's nasty, as they say. Oh yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think so, visas, though, as long as you've got your visas worked out, that's one thing to mention. That's about the problem, BBN. isn't it? We didn't go over there with nothing but a passport. We did have to apply for a, a T five. Mm. We applied for a T five youth mobility visa, so that gives us two years mm. of work and play. Um, the only issue being. We cannot accept public funds. So if you work for a, pu- a public mm. organisation, oh. there's no chance of being paid. Um, okay. However, you, there is possibility to be paid if you negotiate it um, with different places. So that's one. That was one thing to mention. So if you did get a working visa and you sell yourself on your CV, so that's yeah. the research people yeah. Aussies are going to have to do if you want to go over there. You're going to have to research your own visa. I don't have a visa yeah. expert in front of me here today, um, but uh, I guess, Scott, let's just say, because I think networking sometimes is like a key to some of these jobs. Sometimes you just talk to someone, they introduce oh, yeah. you to someone else, and it's just like that, like what you guys were saying with Graham Ross. 
Um, but Scott, let, like, would the Royal Horticultural Society be the first place I'd join if I wanted to network with people, or is it social media? How do I get in touch with people so that I can get into the crowd and I can ask the right questions and meet the right people to get into a great job over in the UK? Yeah, obviously networking, as you say, is, is highly important, and having somebody on the ground or somebody at a garden is a great way to get in and just just have a speak and just ask questions and things. But if you've got nobody, no connections, no idea, then yeah, I, I would say the first stop would probably be either the Royal Horticultural Society or the Chartered Institute of Horticulture. Um, the Royal Horticultural Society are quite good for getting back to you. You know, you can email them, you can phone them and just, just phone or explain, look, I'm an Aussie student. I would really love to come over and work at one of these places, you know, could you give me some advice? And they might be able to help hook you up or um, set you up. They were certainly quite good with me when I was looking to do um, my diploma. You know, they were quite good at advising, you know, the organisations to go through to get all of their exams and all that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, if anybody's out there, feel free to hook, hit me up. You know, I'm on LinkedIn. Um Scott H. Smith at no not at <laughs> Scott H. Smith. I think I've got MCI Hort Dipport Art. Yeah, it's, it's just it's to quite sound important. <laughs> yeah, but it makes me sound really important, so that's good. No, it does it does <laughs> it does separate you out on the feed, to be honest. Like it it's good if you've got the MCI Hort and all that sort of stuff. I, I notice a lot of people do put them up, so that makes sense. The MCI Hort thing is is from the Chartered Institute of Horticulture. Um and that's an organization and it, it's quite hard, I'll be honest. You know, anybody can join as a student. So no experience, you can join and be a student. Um, I think to get to the next stage and be an associate, you require something like four years of gardening experience. And the next one, which is a member, which is the MCI Hort, you need 12 years experience or you need a combination of experience and qualifications. So, you know, a, a diploma is worth three points and every year experience you've got is worth one point. So, yeah. you know, you could have nine years experience and a diploma and that'll get you your 12 points and you can be a member. Um, but, you know, certainly like my wife is in waste management and she's a chartered waste manager and for their criteria it's way lower you know for them to be chartered they can only they do something like six years and then they can set their test to be chartered whereas with us you're talking 12 years to be a member and then to be chartered you're supposed to be a full member and you're supposed to have a master's um mm -hmm. so you know people who've got seahort which is chartered horticulturalist is like pretty stand out as like a wow you know mm. they're really top of their game kind of thing well that sorts the weight from the chaff doesn't it yeah yeah absolutely yeah. and i think that that's sort of like i it's my intuition as somebody who's never been to the uk that um the uk does have quite a different horticultural culture would you agree ash oh certainly yeah definitely oh, yeah but, yeah compared to here 100 percent. i think even just horticulture is a it's an institution in the uk we don't have oh, that yeah. in australia no even the the, the the just the image of it i find is compared way different here you know um here everyone thinks that well not everyone but the majority of people think that horticulture is just pulling weeds and mowing lawns when over there they think it's it's much more than that you know it, you know you're the applied sciences to it and it's just much more complicated uh well not complicated sorry um diverse uh 
in people's minds uh, overseas. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's um, it's one of the aspects that make up that British identity is a love for gardens and growing mm. things. Um, you know, through the war, there was such a promotion for um, allotments, and they they've, they're so synonymous with so many neighbourhoods. Whereas in Australia, I mean, we had Victory Gardens where you'd be promoted to turn your backyard lawn or any grow any any space into a vegetable garden same as the united states but you know gardening has been in the, the uh, british culture and english culture and across the board you know from scotland mm. down to cornwall uh, for the pre for the past thousand years or so you know from medicinal plants for kings and consorts mm. all the way down to you know when people started having their own houses uh, more commonly and being able to grow cottage gardens it's it's steeped in history and you look at the chelsea flower show and that's a massive program that garners so much attention um in those in that brief week that it's running um, people go mad for it uh, and in australia we've got mifcus the Mel- melbourne international flower mm. garden show uh and that gets a 10 minute segment on or five minute segment on yeah not even that's a really interesting gardens. point or mm. gardening Australia. Uh, it's we don't we just don't have. Uh, we are a young nation as well. But um, yeah. when I say that I'm a horticulturist or I work with plants, I mean there's a, there's generally three immediate questions, um, and usually there's a colourful one. Uh, you know, you're either a sissy, you're a chick, oh. or you know, mm-hmm. you just couldn't get any good marks in school. Really. And it's quite Is that an, perception it's, still around. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah I've yeah, had it yeah. quite a lot actually. And, and I mean, I've been mm. doing working in gardens for, um, oh, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years now. And it sort of changed. I mean, I, I was young then, really young. Yeah. But even today, you get some people who think it's still a woman's job or, you know, it's just a well, dumbass job. Yeah. <laughs> it is a woman's job, <laughs> but not not only a woman's job. <laughs> yeah, if you say you do landscaping or yeah, you're it's a, a different... landscape architect, yeah. then people go, oh, cool. yeah, good on you. Hard work. I've nice. never gotten that. I've never had someone denigrate me for horticulture. It's only the only thing is like, oh, does that pay much? That's the only thing that I've yeah, ever that's, felt. Yeah, yeah, it's a big, that is what, yeah, one yeah. of the main questions. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's a very <laughs> it's a very Sydney thing as well. Oh, so how much yeah, do you get paid? Yeah. Uh-huh. Melbourne, we get a bit more grace for the creative type stuff. Yeah, yeah. Culturally. <laughs> <laughs> I would say even over here with our reputation and things, gardening is still seen as kind of an old person's thing to do. Oh, um, yeah. It's just something you do yeah, and you yeah. potter about when you're retired. Um, mm. It's not really seen as a career. Yeah, hmm. yeah. Especially That's exa- that's another one, actually. Um, especially if you're saying that you're a gardener. Uh, oh, my nan works. My nan's a gardener, yeah. too. She's in the garden. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. uh, oh, my, you know, my neighbour, he's ninety-two. He's still in the garden, and you think, oh, okay, yeah. so let's unpack. And I would something. agree as well. It, it's uh, over here as well. It's often seen as a a route for the unacademic. So you'll go to school, and if you fail to get into university, you'll maybe go to like a tech college, and that's the kind of thing where you'll learn yeah. greenkeeping, or yeah. you know, there's there's just really not. It's not seen as an option, like go and be a horticulturalist. That's kind of, you know, no, no. I can't think is, of anyone at school who's been pushed to be a horticulturalist. Yeah, no. Yeah. But at the same is, time, is that just because? Sorry, because of the. Oh, sorry. Is that just because of the image? You think, Scott? 
of what what people think of what horticulture is? Well, I think in part it's the school's problem because at schools they're quite often competitive and they have leagues. So they have a league and you can go on and see what, what position your school is at across the board. And it's done on a basis of the more students they get to go into prestigious universities, the higher up the league the school goes. So the school wants to be top of the league. And the way they do that is to push their students to go and do university degrees at St. Andrews or Edinburgh or whatever. And you go to places like St. Andrews or Edinburgh or any of the sort of prestigious universities, none of them do horticulture courses. You know, they're all uh, medicine and law and maybe (laughs) physics, you know, there's the people who do horticulture tend not to be, well, I mean, uh, there is some, some places do it. I mean, I think university of, Maybe it is Edinburgh. One of them does uh, masters and that kind of thing, but there's certainly not a big undergrad program, you yeah, know, for okay. people going in to do their first degree in horticulture. Certainly not. They maybe do masters, you know, in very specific parts of horticulture. Like uh, I can't remember now. I mean, Edinburgh Botanics do a really good one on plant taxonomy and and that kind of thing. Yeah, right. Um. But certainly, I would say it's just never pushed to us at school level. And if you're not told about it at school, then you don't know about it. And if you don't know about it, you're not interested. That's the same here, yeah. Yeah, I think that's one good thing that um, Graham Ross is working mm. Well, not working on, but he's definitely spoken about it, is um, trying to encourage horticulture in curriculum for secondary school. Uh, because it does give more practically-minded uh, students something to really go for and learn about i mean i had agriculture at school and did that all the way through secondary school so we had a little farm at the back and you know reared animals and did all sorts of things that today you wouldn't be allowed to do um Mm. but it really it helped put some context into pursuing a a career in could have been it could have been uh commercial horticulture so which leads on to viticulture and other really interesting things but yeah. instead i went with ornamental because um mm. well it, it, there's design involved in that and i've had a very creative brain and really like designing garden beds and working with perennials um but and then know, yeah as you say i'm probably about to open a can of worms but the pay is an issue you know people mm. look at it and you look at what's the average salary for a horticulturalist yeah. or gardener and it's like you know Twenty thousand pounds UK, and it's just like, it. well, that sucks. <laughs> you yeah, just yeah. said it. You said horticulturist or gardener. You just put them in the same box, and that's how we get lumped in. Like I yeah. said, mm-hmm. like carpenters don't spot. get lumped in with handymen. Why yeah. do horticulturists yeah, get lumped in with gardeners? It's not fair. Yeah, it's not yeah. fair. Especially unskilled. <laughs> as an unskilled labourer, you you're going to struggle unless you study and. I've had this uh, recently. I've had several conversations with different people asking if they're interested in studying, even a Cert 3, which is a mm. I can't remember how, what the conversion rate is to the UK in terms of um, the RHS or Q um, courses, but um, you know, it, it's the entry level qualification, and even that, which is full time, I think it's only a year. Um, part time might be eighteen months, 
but even that is too much for them to, oh, I don't want to study. I don't want to do this. And it's so practical. It's not too much theory, but it's so easily done. And then bang, you've got that ticket. You can immediately fetch a higher salary. And especially if you're interested, you're keen, and you show that you have got the nous for it. Well, you can negotiate. You can get up there. But if you were going to sell the career with the average salary straight up, I mean, you, re- yeah, you generally see people in horticulture with dedication and passion rather than, oh, mate, you're going to be on 120 a year in no time. Well, we're going to see this change. Um, the staff shortage is going to be the – I know it's, sound, it's so horrible right now for a lot of especially employers, but it is going to be a good thing for – Staff in the long run, because what's it going to do? It's going to suddenly the power's more in in the, in the staff's shoes, isn't it? So yeah. you know we can be more mm. selective, and employers going to have to start paying us more. That means that councils and clients are going to have to start paying more, and um, you know otherwise all of our uh, companies are going to go under, and the entire industry is going to collapse. So that something's going to have to give there. Well, that's it. I mean, um, so, when you talk about garden maintenance, it's an integral part of the house, right? You know, it, the garden makes up the out, the outer landscape, and if you're if you love your house and you love your garden, you want it looking schmick, so you get gardeners in. But if you've got to get any work done on the house, think of how much a roofer is, a carpenter, or a plumber, or a painter, etc. Yeah, different exactly. fields of expertise, but it's expertise. And if you want the top of the range horticulturist to come around to manage your gardens that comes with a premium and mm. it's yeah it's just that, a can of worms that I'm, i won't open you're right I, it I is a can of worms <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah no it's just about um educating the public on you know our skill differentiating ourselves through education yeah. and through and I know that there are organisations like the AIH and Therapeutic Horticulture and, you know, Landscaping Victoria, the Master Landscapers, all these sort of things. The more that we can get that branding out there showing that, no, we're professionals, mm. I think that this uh. is how we're going to change the perception. And, you know, things like Gardening Australia too, as they're getting, you know, people are getting more of an education, that's a good way to get into it to start with, you know, to start yeah. respecting the garden. But yeah, Absolutely. it's just um, people need to understand just how much is just behind it. Like you, all all four of us can sit here and we all know different things than than the other people. Like nobody knows everything about horticulture. Oh yeah, that's a great thing. You you, you always continue learning new things. You know. Yeah, there's definitely yeah, you never always will something know everything. There's yeah. always something new. Yeah, and that yeah. that's the other other great thing about it is you know you can always call a friend or dial up a friend. Mm. Oh yeah, because if Social I don't know something. Great. I, yeah, I'm not going to blow smoke. I'm going to give. I can, yeah. I, I can think of someone I can call, and there's not a lot of. There are industries and uh, vocations that you can do that, but generally, you, I don't I haven't seen. I, I I can only think of horticulture where I can reliably call up someone who's an expert in that particular thing. The one thing that I would never think about, but it comes up this one one site. And I can go, hey, look, what's this problem? You know about this? Oh, yeah, it's edema. And, oh, yeah. crap. Mm-hmm. I should have known that. <laughs> but now, I, you know, you can. Yeah. it's another learning point. And then if you've got that, you know, mm. brain, you can research it a bit more, jot a couple of notes down, and it sort of sits in your head. So the next time you see something similar, oh, that looks like edema. Hang on, I'm going to just do a quick little uh, cross-check. Because the worst thing you can do is, like, for, in terms of, private horticulture, which is where I'm at, you tell your client, 
Um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I think we can do, yeah. And so, so you start <laughs> stammering and you, you try to blow smoke in their direction. Yeah, yeah. The best thing you can do is say, hey, I don't actually know, but I've got to make specializers in that. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I'll find out for you as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. Whereas, yeah, pe- people who don't have that experience, that doesn't come with a qualification. That just comes with experience um, in terms of pulling off a swift one. And there's, there's times... We did, have a good, we did have a good story here where um, there was a guy, he was an ex-head gardener, 40 years experience. Um, <clears throat> he unfortunately started getting some issues with uh, dementia. You know, he started to kind of forget things. And uh, he would still love going around the garden and showing people around the garden and things like that. And then what he started doing was he was going around and just naming all the plants, but he was naming it after all his medicines he was taking and people just didn't even know any different because he just said it with such confidence. You know, this is Asprinus, Adipus, or whatever, and, you know. <laughs> yeah. oh, there have been times that I've so been just tempted. say it with confidence, Tyler. If you don't know, just say it anyway, and it doesn't matter. If it's and you can, you can always redact something or like come back and say hey i said this earlier but you know yeah. and just do that 10 times of... and really confuse them yeah yeah <laughs> i mean i never i i tend to just resort especially if you, if you think of plants sometimes a common one slips up i mean i i've got a bookshelf of plant books that, mm. behind me and I, I like to think that i've got a good head on uh, you know several thousand genus and species uh, which we covered when we studied and all of that and you're always constantly seeing different plants come up on your instagram feed and you and you're looking through all of yeah. the catalogs for the different wholesale nurseries but um botanicus unknownicus or you know <laughs> it, it, that's always good just yeah come back to it later Sometimes you can have a plant that you know well, and if it's just first appearing or dying off, and then you can't recognize it. Yeah. And then there's the other ones, like um, Anisodontia capensis, which I've never, I've planted it once 10 years ago at my mum's place. I read the tag twice and I memorized it because I thought that was such a cool name. Never have I ever had to use it since. Or, you know, when we studied <laughs> having to learn Leighton's Green, Cross Capresso Cyparis Leylandii. Uh, How many times do you think I've ever said that in my career? The, the only times I do say it is when I'm trying to one-up someone with a, you know, Harry Potter spell. <laughs> oh, so you call that Leighton's Green? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so we call that Lawson Cypress. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that, see, yeah. we call Lawson, uh, uh, Lawson Cypress would be Capressus Lawsoniana. Mm. I think. Oh, maybe I'm getting mixed up then. What did you say your other one was called? Leighton Green or Leighton's Green. It's um, yeah. What was the Latin? Oh, the Latin Cross Cupresso Cyparis Leylandii. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We call that Leyland Cypress. So. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's a very common hedging plant in Australia. Yeah. But then that's that's why that's why the Latin is good. You know, people complain yeah. about the Latin, but if you have got the Latin, it doesn't matter what you. What you call the no. common name for the yeah. Although that does change yeah. from time to time, too frustrating. It has. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, what... I work with gardeners here from Europe. Um, you know, we had someone from Holland. We had someone from Germany. Um, we've had Italian people, and you know, everyone's got a different name for what you would call. Yeah. What well, we have call... just different names in the same city here, let alone different. <laughs> like it's a yeah. bloody big country, like. 
It's you, amazing. You really do forget how big this country is and how separated we are. Like from from where I am in Melbourne to where, uh, to Perth in Western Australia, it's a long bloody way. Yeah, and like three I, or I four hours th- on the plane. Yeah, uh, botanical names are really important too, especially if you are um, a professional in the field, because yeah, you can't rely on common names. No, and you can't rely no. on sight. Like you want to be, a, you want your plants if you're doing an install, each have a label, not just one or the other. Because I've seen it in landscape jobs where they've <laughs> planted rubber trees alongside magnolias mm. because the little gems looked similar to the <laughs> ficus elastica when they went at a particular stage mm. of development. They, they are if you um if you know what you're looking at, yeah. yeah then you they got the waxy light yeah. green leaf, and or even yeah. if it's just like um a slightly different cultivar or you know like <laughs> um I see a lot of agapanthus is a good example where it's all purple ones all the way up the road, and then there's one little uh. white one there, <laughs> and they're all purple again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that's exactly right. I mean, um, I've seen them where they've plant they've done a mass a mass planting which was going to be cloud pruned rosemary, and it turned out to be all prostrate rosemary. <laughs> and it never got up above 30 centimetres or so. And <laughs> so it just turned into a big flat blob. Um, and rather, we, they worked with it. It was all right. But it made it, it caused a lot of adjustments to a, the original planting plan to incorporate that because there was too much cost involved in the replacement at that point, hmm. especially since six months later. We had we had things like when I did the Chris Beardshaw redesign at Pit Madden, um, and we got the plants up from the local nursery, and they were labelled. And some plants you could tell straight away, but there was other ones where you just had to take it on good faith that the nursery had labelled it correctly. So we had three types of lupin with no flower, and you're like, right, okay. So you know you took it on its word for what the label was, planted it in the clumps it was supposed to be in, and then when it started flowering, you'd go like, oh yeah. Purple, 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 red, purple, purple, and you're right. Okay, so I'll have to wait for that to finish now, and I'll have to lift it and shift it later on. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one of my clients, uh, um, a lovely woman um, in Whale Beach, would tell me about uh, she had a nice garden, and she'd always make me stop for a bit of a lunch break with her and make she'd make a big palaver out of it. And it was, um, it was lovely. But she'd lived in Montreal for years and years and had a beautiful... Um, a beautiful tulip garden and daffodils and other things. And the, her biggest nemesis then were squirrels that would go in and other little critters would go and dig up all the bulbs and redistribute them. So that was the one of the biggest problems. If you didn't lift them and store them, then your, your beautiful parterres would all of a sudden just be a hodgepodge cottage. <laughs> Yeah, we used to have squirrel issues as well. We we planted a load of cyclamen, cyclamen coom, and what we had to do was basically get um, like vegetable netting, uh, quite strong reinforced vegetable netting, and just do it as like a big runner round the tree where it was planted and put it and peg it down to stop the squirrels being able to just lift it and hoik them out. And you're just doing all that kind of stuff, and you're like, oh, what a lot of work it is just to stop these. Blooming squirrels from <laughs> ripping up everything you've just planted. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, us and possums. I mean, they don't tend to rip things out. They do. I'm yet to see any flowers on five roses I planted a couple of years ago. Um, but in New Zealand, you know, you you can um, you can make gloves out of them, and you can get rid of them. 
but I don't think I'm at that point yet. My no. ang- I, they're little ringtail <laughs> possums, which are no. quite cute. I don't even like doing it to the mice. We've got outdoor mice as well, which when we when we sort because I think possums are. I mean, they're not. It's not that they're dumb. It's just that if you put a net up, they're like, "That's good enough for me." Goodbye. They don't really like <laughs> look any closer. Whereas the mice will really get through there. So yeah. once we got rid of the possums, uh, the mice came through, and we were just like, "F you, seriously, just yeah." They <laughs> see a, they see a challenge, and they're like, "I can do this." Yeah, I know, and I don't want to kill them either. So it's like, what do you do? So I just move things and grow things quickly and, and harvest them yeah. quickly. Because yeah. I mean, grow bags. So that's the only, the only thing. Oh, of course, yeah. It's different, I suppose. If you've got the room, you can grow a hell of a lot of everything and hopefully they just get distracted. That's and, it. Yeah, you know, and, and like the herbs too. as well. I think they get tricked by the smells. If you put a lot of herbs in with some sort of mixed planting as some companion plant, sometimes the smell can throw them off. Yeah. It works for a while. But if you put too many lettuces or too many spinaches or oh, too many silver beets in a row. monoculture, they just yeah. go, oh, yeah. Chomp, 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 chomp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I, I grow dandelions too and they eat the flowers off on the buggers really <laughs> uh, yeah dandelions are delicious you Jeez, don't grow dandelions I, no i used to um we used to actually we still grow them uh, unintentionally of course but um we had guinea pigs and so they were fantastic uh roughage for the guinea pigs and then mm. they've gradually gradually spread and i mean ash knows and other people who i talk to know that i'm i'm not a lazy weeder i'm just uh <laughs> I'm a, a corner cutting weeder, and I generally just deadhead yeah. weeds in my garden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The time it takes to effectively do the weeding for me, I'm I'm not that fast. I'm not a I'm not. No, precious I'm the same. And there's a lot of lot yeah. to be said for the benefits of them. Yeah, I mean, look, exactly. you've got even though it's an introduced species and it's terrible, but you know, I never let them go to seed, and pollinators mm. love it. Um, Dandelions, you can pull up a, if you get a nice thick root. That's per, you know great for um, a variety of things and for your gut health. And uh, mm. the leaves, they taste good on a salad. You know, yeah. mix them up with some you like chickweed stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mix with some chickweed, yeah, yeah to balance it out good. a little bit. That's another thing. You know, you the can texture. Teach... The texture is funny though. Some people don't like the texture of chickweed. It's a bit stringy. Oh, I just I like to make you just finally chop it, chuck it in with some yeah. bean sprouts and alfalfa or. Which is just lucerne, you know. That's another one. Mm. Common names so you hear Americans: cilantro and coriander. <laughs> and if people get confused with if they don't know, they don't know. But yeah, you can make some great salads with stuff that pops up between the cracks. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. Well, cheers, boys. Thanks for a great chat. Likewise. Oh no, worries. thanks Thank for having you. us. I'm, I know we di- I digressed a lot. Oh, well, dude. Put a little disclaimer up there. I'll be um, it'll say roundtable discussion, and I'll make sure I say yes. We are talking about careers in the UK, but we do ramble a lot. But it's all relevant to plants. I mean, we didn't talk about ourselves. We just talked about plants. I think that I think the best thing for anyone who's thinking or has thought about it, or is you know down in the dumps with Australian horticulture and looking for something. I mean, horticulture. Mm. uh, uh, The UK. Um, and horticulture in Britain, if you think about it, the UK is horticulture mecca, and for especially the Commonwealth nations, of course, you've got the rest of Europe, which is definitely worth seeing. I mean, the Netherlands, uh, any anywhere in the Europe basically has a specialty of their own. Go to Hungary yeah. if you want to learn how to grow the best capsicums in the world. Um, 
But, you know, they've got their specialties. The UK, in terms of ornamental horticulture, it's where so many traditions have started. You know, you've got walled gardens, um, you name it, perennials. The love of gardening is real there. And um, it's a, it is very well respected in, in terms of what, how, yeah. how many people, sorry, are positively affected by it and also who are interested by it. Yeah. So not only have you got the professional aspect, but everyone I talked to over there about gardening and horticulture were fascinated and they had a story to tell. They had their own experience. Oh, my grandmother grew that. Or have you seen the gardens at Hampton Court? And, oh, they have, you know, there's so many nice little things to come out of it. So it's worth it. I mean, and being Australian, you'd probably be able to catch up with some family there if they're still mm-hmm. kicking around, if you weren't all sent over as convicts. <laughs> yeah. Great, 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 granny, Bethy. <laughs> hey, look, I always ask people one final question. May as well do that. I know it's a roundtable discussion, but we'll still go through and ask each of you as what else would you like the listeners to know about? Could be anything. Who wants to go first? Oh, what do you think? Scott, you're first, mate. You've already you've had enough Ooh. by now. Yeah, I'm fed up. See you later. Uh, <laughs> what would I like anyone else to listen? I don't know. Um, no, I would just say you know if you're yeah, I would say it's been a brilliant chat with Tyler and Ash about. UK horticulture and just the whole scholarship program. So, you know, if anybody out there is thinking about it, absolutely do it. Get over here, see what we've got to offer. Um, and I mean, it sounds like Tyler and Ash have had an amazing time and they've really learned a lot and grown a lot. And um, I mean, they certainly seem to have a bit of prestige to stick on the old CV as well, by the sounds of it. <laughs> um, but, you know, both are obviously extremely keen horticulturalists, very well spoken. You know, compare. I think the first time I did a podcast, it sounded like absolute rubbish. But <laughs> you know, used to I'm everyone just, uh, says that sounded sounded fantastic. Uh. Really. So, no, your your passion is very clear, and you know, if we've got people over in Australia who are showing such standards as these two, then yeah, happy days. You know, happy Thanks, days, Scott. Yeah, thank you. That that's all going to go to my head. <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, <laughs> it already has. Look at the hair. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think travel is really important. A lot of Australians already know that, but yeah, if you're in the field, explore your options. Go to Marrakesh. Mm-hmm. You know, go to Singapore. Go to France. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many gardens out there that do different things that can help pique your knowledge. And don't be afraid. You know, you have to learn the new language. I had to communicate with. Uh, people over there with nothing but Google Translate. And that was, you know, convenient. But other times, mm. I, I just invented words and put on a French twang and did my best John Cleese efforts. <laughs> um, met with interesting reception. But <laughs> I think anyone would do themselves a favour going to Singapore. I mean, the horticulture oh, there is oh, outstanding. Yeah. The gardens there, yep. I've seen pictures. I just... Yeah. That's another place on on top of the list as well. Yes, the gardens, but also the the Jewel Shopping Centre has this giant indoor forest thing. It's very oh, wow. avatar-y. Oh, very cool. Okay. Yeah, the yeah, gardens by the bay and the botanical. Yeah, yeah, the gardens yeah. by the bay. You got to see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the city itself, the green infrastructure there. There's a lot of green walls and stuff like that. Like they're really on top of it. They're quite sustainable, aren't they? I believe like, so. Yeah. You'd say like they're pro top. You'd think. 
I think that they're very keen on their green infrastructure. I know the Australian Institute of Horticulture recently did a bit of a shindig over there. They, they did, yeah. Mm. It is yeah. a green. It is a green city. I mean, it is literally a city that's been mm. plumped in the middle of a jungle. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. still like semi jungly. Like yeah. when you think about well, how much every green day at eleven o'clock it rains. So <laughs> you know, you, you know that you've got an hour of hardcore rain, and then after that, it dries up, and you can go back out again. Yeah. And then it's going to be stinking hot and humid. That's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about you, Ash? Any final thoughts? Like, what would you um, like people to know about? Just that certainly whatever field that you're currently in or what you're interested in, travel is certainly the the way to go further in your career and uh open so many more opportunities and you you just have to take the leap. The the hardest thing is just making that decision that you're gonna you're gonna do the traveling. So that's beyond that it gets much better and it's Certainly, something that you'll never regret. Yeah, it's um, it'll change your life definitely. So, definitely mm. do the traveling thing and just yeah, explore the world, go to all different gardens, and mm. it's when it. I don't think. Um. Yes, yeah, Tal and I we had the we had the scholarship and we had the contacts and um, Graham he helped to set up the placements, but. Even just sometimes a simple email to a garden or something and just saying that you're just, – just to express that you're interested, that you'd like to do a bit of work experience there or something, you know. You don't necessarily have to need contacts just as long as you show that you're very passionate and eager to, to mm-hmm. work at some of these places overseas. Sometimes that can be enough. So well to said. And even if you don't yeah. want to – if you can't sort out the work there or sort out a visa for it, Go traveling. You know, spend as yeah. much time as you can legally in the country and tour those places, meet the people, mm. Uh, mm. satiate your interest. Then you can think about, oh, do I really want, do I want to do that? Which you should uh, if you're able to. <laughs> yeah. If you're a young single person, especially, or you don't have many commitments, um, like the world's your exactly. oyster. Just do it. Yeah. I don't. Don't think Ash will plug himself, so I will. Um, you can read further about Ash's exploits, can't you, in Hot <laughs> Journal Australia in the October edition? Oh, yes, you sure can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You sure can. In the what, sorry, October edition? Hot Journal Australia. Oh, I didn't read I didn't read your article. Oh, I missed it. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not only for like only for, for the first half of the trip, so I think I was talking to Karen Smith about doing a sec the second part of the second part of the trip as well. Cool. So we'll have to go into that as well. But no, same. If you want to look at both Tyler and I's Instagrams, you know, our entire trip has been posted on there. So, and also, I like, especially for myself, feel free to to message anyone that's ever wants to just know what we did or are interested in what guns, you know, or what it's like doing traveling. Always happy to answer any questions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Be links mm. in the show notes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and find Scott. On LinkedIn, I think we're all on LinkedIn for messaging oh, yeah. in terms of yeah. getting in contact, oh, yeah. networking, and anything yeah. else. Anything. I don't know what you'll find was, if you type yeah. me into Google, but yeah, you know. <laughs> what videos will pop up? I was planning to pop over to Oz and put on a little cork hat and see if I can get myself a scholarship. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, Ash, saying that, what videos will pop up? Um, you'll find mm. a lot of younger me playing with Lego potentially on YouTube oh, in yeah, about 2000, 2007. <laughs> so, <laughs> <All right. Yeah. laughs> 
So that's the bad thing about a social media presence. One night on the whiskey and you've put in a hundred posts of rubbish and you have to go sanitize oh. it. Hey, Scott, <laughs> yes, I'm, you must be speaking for yourself because I've seen some great things coming on your LinkedIn page. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Horticulture related, of course. Of course. And a lot of rubbish too. <laughs> Oh, thanks Cheers, boys. for having us, Dan. That's been fantastic. Great to no, catch up. Awesome. It was a great chat, yeah. boys. Thank you very much. Working in the UK is a rite of passage for many Aussie horticulturists, and a few guests of this podcast have done it, including Tim Entwistle and John Shearley. If you're a horticulture student and you'd like to have a chance at a scholarship for this type of life experience, check the show notes to learn more about the BBM program. Listen to Scott's fortnightly Hort Skills episode in our back catalogue, or listen to episode 110, Maintaining Heritage Formal Gardens in the UK, and episode 115, Apple and Pear Tree Pruning Guide. If you've created an account on hortpeople.com, but you haven't uploaded a resume yet, you're so close to getting poached by a better job than the one you have right now. Quick, go and upload your resume now. It's super easy, and it's free for job seekers.